Good morning, everybody. I'm Angela Davis, and you are listening to NPR News. My guest today is a true trailblazer and a self-described bad mamma jamma. And you know what? I agree. Debbie Montgomery grew up in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul. In 1963, when she was just 17 years old, she became the youngest person to serve on the national board of the NAACP. That is, of course, a national organization that works towards equity, political rights, and social inclusion of Black people and people of color. In the mid-1970s, she became the first woman to become a police officer for the city of St. Paul. Later, she was the first Black woman elected to the St. Paul City Council. I'm honored and excited to have Debbie Montgomery here in the studio with me today to talk about her amazing life and career. Good morning, Debbie. Hello. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I got the inspiration for that song because you called yourself that in an interview a few years ago. I'm like, you know what? She's right. And I have been thinking a lot about what it means to be the first, the first at anything um, within a company, within a family. And to me, it, it carries it means it carries weight. Some, some pressure, a sense of, I, I represent more than just me. I represent all, you know, the other people who are like me. So I have to perform really well. And so I want to know, do you feel that way too? I do. It's, it's a lot of pressure because, you, you know, you have to be in the first. Everybody's kind of looking at you and, and, you know, they're weighing you on their expectations and, and you're weighing yourself on your expectations. And you want to be able to excel and do the best that you can so that you're going to be reflective of the people that are behind you. And so that's one of the things that I'm really interested in. And that was the pressure that I felt when I started. And now in 2023, particularly over the last couple of years, we see announcements of a lot of first, particularly, you know, women of color, the first CEO uh, who is a, a black woman or, or a Latina. And, and does that surprise you? We're still seeing so many firsts? Oh, yeah. You know, our country, on one hand, we're moving fast. And on another hand, we're not moving fast enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to become more inclusive. We have to start looking at people for the resources and skills that they bring to the table and not to look at them for their size, their weight, their their color, uh, to be just more concerned about what is the product that they bring to the table. The value. Yep. The value. To our listeners, I want you to know that as, as Debbie Montgomery and I talk, I, I want to hear from you too. We're taking your phone calls and... I want to know, have you been the first in a workplace or another type of organization, or have you been a trailblazer in some other way? Um, As you learn more about Debbie and her story, I want to know what inspires you. Give us a call at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000. You can also call 800 242-2828. Debbie, you grew up in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul, uh, a place that's produced many amazing leaders. When you think about your childhood in Rondo, what do you remember the most? Well, I think the best thing about Rondo that I remember is it was a village. I mean, everybody knew everybody. Uh, Families supported each other. Um, We, you know, we had our own African-American businesses, uh, you know, it was just, you know, we had our lawyers, our doctors, our dentists, um, our professional people, uh, the people that ran the grocery stores, the hardware stores. And so it was just nice. You got to see somebody when you went into a place that looked like you. 
and um, they all held you to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell the story that, you know, me or anybody else, and you'll hear it from anybody from Rondo, they'll say, okay, you're going down the street and you're doing something, you're acting out, and somebody will stop you and say, young lady, young lady, what family do you belong to? And then after you address them, because you will address them, right. <laughs> you, you tell them, and they say, well, that's not the proper behavior or things that you should be doing. And by the time you got home, they didn't have cell phones then. The drumbeat had got there, and not only did you get disciplined at the site, but you got disciplined at home. So mm-hmm. there was always somebody that was really there to support you and to let you know, hey, we care about you. We want to talk to you. We want to make sure that you know what behavior is appropriate and how to help you be successful. So it has to be particularly jarring to you when you read news stories or hear about events that have happened, uh, even most recently, a a 12-year-old who was uh, driving a stolen vehicle, a car full of of young teenagers crashing, and uh, all the stories that we hear about uh, some young young people, uh, children, uh, and and crime and gun violence. And what do you make of that? Well, I think... It's kind of a a breakdown of family values. I think that, you know, we've got, I say, babies raising babies. Folks that have grown up and had babies at a young age, nobody taught them, you know, how to be a good parent. Um, And to be, and, and how are we as a community supporting these young families? who don't know how to use resources or know, don't know how to handle their young people when they have disagreements or, you know, they're concerned about, I don't have this, but somebody else has got that. How do we work with the family so that we can get them supported and help that young person versus the 10 and 12-year-olds that are stealing cars and having guns and shooting people? And I mean... It, it it shows a lack of humanity and of of family values, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I think is something that we as a community have to work on. So a lot of different groups need to come together to address this. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we go back uh, in the past, I mentioned in 1963, uh, a big year for you. You were the youngest member of the National NAACP board, and you actually served on the board with Thurgood Marshall. Before he became a U.S. Supreme Court justice, uh, what was that like for you as as such a young person? Well, it was kind of amazing because uh, I would sit there with Roy Wilkins, Margaret Bush Wilson, Thurgood Marshall, uh, the president of the uh, largest black bank in uh, North Carolina that was the largest bank in the United States, a black run and owned. And it was just to listen to the discussions on how they interpreted what was going on and and how we were going to address it as a as a board and as a as an organization uh during my time on the board 6 years um we passed 470 laws and it was at mm-hmm. the end of the, my 6 years I said I'm I I don't want to do this cuz nobody's enforcing the laws you know mm-hmm. and so it became very frustrating to me to to you know go through that process. But to listen to those discussions was amazing for me as a young person. And, and it kind of stuck with me throughout my life. Yeah, you you absorb some things. They planted exactly. some seeds. Uh, also in 1963, you were present for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Uh, what do you remember about that day? Oh, 
It was it was phenomenal. What it was two hundred and fifty thousand people and in DC. In DC at the at the his speech and it was it was just amazing. For me to be there, I actually my I was raised by my grandparents and so I had t- taken a train there uh and the porters and them took care of me. But when I got there everybody said, Well, weren't you afraid because you were there? By yourself, and I said I wasn't there by myself because the people that I had been with at the NAACP, the young people and the parents were there. So it wasn't like I didn't know people in the crowd. I knew folks, and I, you know, I was very comfortable in the environment, and it was very powerful to hear Dr. King and the words he said, and it was just very uplifting. So let's talk about. You going into law enforcement, uh, you didn't plan on becoming a police officer. You were actually a city planner. And uh, then then mayor, then St. Paul Mayor Lawrence Cohen asked you to join the police academy. Uh, how did that come about? And why did you agree? <laughs> well, thank you. But first of all, Ron Jones was the EEO officer for the city at that time. And they were hiring 50 officers. And the NAACP had filed a lawsuit against the city and the police department because they had 600 officers and they only had four African-Americans and 6% of the population was Mm African-American. And so they posted the test and Miles Lord, who was the attorney general, said after they said they were going to hire 50, he said 10 had to be African-American. And so uh, Ron Jones said to me, Debbie, I need you to take the test because you're the only woman I know that can pass it because I was a jock in my younger days. And it was the West an, Point. Military, an athlete? An athlete. Okay. What, what sport? You were? Oh, I played everything. Baseball, softball, volleyball, mm-hmm. speed skated, uh, you name it, I played it. Okay. And, and I was just, and I was a tomboy. <laughs> right. So it seemed like a good fit. Yes. Okay. But uh, anyway, it was the West Point Military Physical Agility Test where you oh. had to run 25 yards, get over a four-foot fence, run 25 yards, get over a six-foot wall, climb a ladder, get down in a cylinder, and get out. It was just a obstacle course, and you had to get it done in a timed. And I was the only woman out of 250 women that passed, and only eight men had done it faster than I, so... So here you go. Here I go. So you complete the police academy, and 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 then were you having second thoughts about it, or? Well, I had. There's a letter in my file that said, "Thank you for the opportunity to take the test," but you know, I don't want the job. I was a city planner, and it was a ten thousand dollar cut and pay. All you needed was a GED, and I had a master's degree, and so. So to become a St. Paul police officer. Only a GED was required. Back then. And you already had a master's degree. Right. And a job. And a job. <laughs> so then how do we end up in a police officer's uniform? What happened? Well, what, what happened? What changed your mind? One of the eight, one of the 10 African-American men dropped out the Friday before the academy started. And they had to have 10. And the only person that the mayor had control of was me because I was already a city employee. So he said, Debbie, I need you to sit in this academy for me so that I can get it started. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, who's going to make the difference up and pay? And he said, don't worry, you'll be taken care of. I always say, watch out what a politician says to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, okay, okay. so now I got a pay cut and I have to go do this thing that I don't really want to do. But clearly something happened. Well, you know, I got in there and it was, you know, it was really interesting. And um, I was sitting there and, and I was doing extremely well. I was in the top of my academy. I was able to do what the average man could do and the things that they had us doing. And, uh, and I, you know, I, it, what was interesting is at night, 
I'd come home to my four kids, my youngest was two and a half, and my husband, I'd make sure they were taken care of, and then I would go and tutor the other nine African-American men on what the quiz was going to be the next day. I was pretty good at figuring out what the questions were going to be on the quiz Mm -hmm. and made sure that they were on board and and had an understanding of what we had to be able Mm -hmm. to do that next day. Because, again, you're, you're trailblazers. You're the first, right? Yes. And you're helping each other out. And you have four kids? Yes. And a husband at the time. Okay, I'm trying to catch up. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. You graduate from the academy, yeah. and you're like, okay, let me, I'm going to do this. I'm in now. I'm going to just do this work. No. At no. the end, I, I was ready to go back to my job, and they said, well, we need to have 10. And so I'm in the academy. I'm doing you know, above average and and everything. And lifting up the other African-American officers. Officers along with me. And so I'm, I'm he told me I only had, the mayor said, I only had to be there for two weeks. Well, at the end of two weeks, I thought, okay, I don't want to do this job, but maybe there is a woman that wants to do it. And if I quit, they'll think a woman can't do it. And there was absolutely nothing that they were doing that I couldn't do. So Mm -hmm. I thought, well, let me stay in, so that you know, now it's not about me; it's more about the women and and that. And uh, so then I ended up staying in the academy. And at the end of the sixteen week academy, we didn't have real bullets in our gun, and we hadn't driven the squad cars and turned the red lights and sirens on. And I said, "Well, I went through this sixteen weeks of hell," and and I said, "I want to do this." So then I said, "I'm going to go through the field training part." And get out into the into the area. So back then they had bench seats; they didn't have the bucket seats. And so the average man at that time was six feet tall. I was five foot six and three fourths. And so when I got in to drive and I pulled the seat up so I could drive, the guy next to me says, "Oh no, this ain't working because his knees were in his chest." So the, you have to push the seat back, and then so I didn't get to drive the car and turn the red lights and siren. I had to be the passenger, and the passenger is the writer of the reports. Okay, and so it it was interesting because the investigators and the the city attorney and them loved reading my reports because I could write complete sentences and have proper <laughs> spelling. And They were thorough. Yes. They were very thorough. So what's it like then? Okay, mid-1970s, um, what was it like uh, being a part of the St. Paul Police Force at that time as a woman, as a black woman? Where What kind of uh, calls were you going out on? Well, that's another interesting piece. They assigned me to almost all of the rookies got assigned to midnights, and they put me in the highest crime area in a one-person unit because nobody wanted to ride with me. And Because you were a woman? A woman. And, and so they would give me calls that two people should have went to. I mean, we had the Hell's Outcast headquarters in my beat, and I remember the first call that What I, is that? Is that a... Um... An area, the beat is the area that you're patrolling. No, what is Hell's Outcast? Oh, it's a motorcycle gang. Okay, okay. And so they were, their headquarters was in my beat area. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first call that I got, one of my first calls was to go over to a loud party. And so I I pull up. Now everybody knows this is the address for this Mm -hmm. group. And here's 100 motorcycles around the block lined up. And here's the music blast and these big bikers and they got bears in their hands. And 
And to be honest, I was afraid. I mean, you know, here I am, and I don't hear anybody saying they're coming to back me up. And so you're going in. I imagine the police are called because there's a like a, a bar brawl or a fight or something. So no, it was a, just, just a loud party. Oh, okay. I mean, you, know, you know, they're t- loud, talking loud, right. music's blasting. So what happens when you walk in? Uh, well, that was an Typically. interesting. Yeah, I you know I go up and I'm talking to one of the guys and. I said, excuse me, sir, can you tell me who's in charge of this party? And I can't say on the radio what he said to me, but um, he it was very direct. And You're in uniform. I was in uniform, and uh, he was not paying much attention to me. And, and then when he made his comment, and uh, I, it's a bad word, so I don't know if I can imagine. Okay, so go on. <laughs> and so anyway, he said, you know, I haven't done this to a pig before. And I put my hand on my gun and I says, you're not doing that to one tonight. And then I got on the radio and I called for backup. <laughs> and so that was... And they came. And they came, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And then I ended up meeting the head of the outcast. And, and I, you know, I'd get this call on and off throughout my career and I said, listen, you want to party with your ladies. You know, if the gang of blue comes, somebody's going to go to jail. Why don't you just turn the music down? And you guys just, you know, relax. And so anyway, we kind of had some, some agreement, sort of agreement right. that... Right. Uh, to limit those interactions. Right. Now, you ended up working on the force for 20, 28 years. Yep. How did you see the police force change uh, in St. Paul during that time? You know, I, I have to actually say, well, two years after I came on as the first woman, they had a court-ordered women's class. So there were 10 women that came on. Did you help train them? I wasn't in training. I was still on midnights, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, but I, I knew who they were. And I went ahead and I said, you know, okay, if I when I'd see them, they were in the academy, and, and when I'd see them out on the street or stuff, I would give them some advice or some issues that I had encountered and some things that might have been helpful to them. Mm-hmm. All right. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Debbie Montgomery, uh, a community leader, a trailblazer here in Minnesota, particularly in St. Paul, and uh, the first woman to become a police officer for the city of St. Paul back in 1975. And taking your phone calls, because I, I want to hear your stories about being the first. Have you been the first in a workplace or an organization? Uh, have you been a, a trailblazer in some other way? Uh, what is it about Debbie's story that inspired you call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 so debbie before we continue let's take some phone calls from our listeners and see what they want to tell us uh in minnetonka beth is on the phone good morning beth and what do you want to share uh good morning Uh, i wanted to share that i was um i recently graduated from the university of minnesota and was hired uh by at&t to be their first female construction supervisor in the United States. Wow. And what year was this, Beth? 1975. Okay. And what was that like? like, Much like Debbie's, uh, I heard some of Debbie's comments, um, the the only reason I was given that opportunity was because the uh, Justice Department had filed a sex discrimination suit against AT&T, Mm-hmm. And they had, they were to the point, that was the beginning of, of female installers and repair people, as you may recall, but they couldn't get anyone to, to be a construction supervisor. So I had 
interviews with about seven people, and I had a college degree, which you had to have to get into this program, but I had just completed a 10-week auto mechanics class, and I contend that that had a lot more to do with my getting the job than my four-year college degree. But (laughs) nonetheless, I I did get the offer and uh, was given a crew to construct, bury cable in the spring, summer, fall, and then take it aerial cable down in the winters. And I was the only woman, obviously. I worked only with men. Um, How did that go, working only with men, being just, just the only woman, Beth? Well, it, you know, it was challenging. It was lonely at times. Um, and and yet some, it was very interesting how some of the people I worked with uh, internally at the company, some were very supportive and some couldn't wait to see me leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the greatest difficulty I had was with other trades uh, when I had to work with other trades like gas or electric mm-hmm. or um, those sorts of trades were were not as welcoming and helpful and or kind. And so Beth, how do you think this this shaped you and 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 you know what advice do you give women today who are, you know, entering uh, similar fields? Well, uh, the I'd I'd say the number one encouragement I would offer is to believe in yourself and to do the right thing and to persist. Without persistence much like Debbie's story, um, success would not come. I mean, she's mm-hmm. been a, she's an incredible role model, and and you, it, it's the confidence in yourself that you can do it. It's mm-hmm. like I always often said to other women who came after me is that the the Justice Department lawsuit opened the door for me, but it didn't keep me inside. Right. It was my my determination, my persistence, mm-hmm. and my genuineness of really wanting to do a good job. And th- to me, the most important thing was it didn't matter whether somebody wanted me there or not. I was there to do a job, and I succeeded by all the metric and, man- and stand, you know, measurements that mm-hmm. were used. And and um, thank you, Beth. I I, was- I loved hearing that story and the, the connections. Uh, Debbie, you're nodding there. Uh, today, you continue to mentor other police officers, uh, including women officers, officers of color. Uh, you walked in, you're like, yeah, yesterday I was with my babies. I'm like, what babies? Uh, tell everybody what you do in terms of still being very active in the in, in the law enforcement community, but particularly mentoring other officers. Uh, I'm the senior advisor for the African, the Latino, the Asian, and the Somali police officers. So I go to their meetings and I sit and I listen to the things that are going on and and then I give suggestions and stuff on issues that they have. And then I also teach the post courses. So I've been doing that part time for 25 years. So it's just so exciting to see them when they graduate and then get a job. And now I get to really engage with the 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 my other minority groups that are there and mm-hmm. and I deal with the majority groups too but mm-hmm. I like I call my babies because I just <laughs> I just I love listening to them and and they're and they're so young and they have high expectations and I just want to guide them so they can go along the path and right. so fuel them give them yes. that 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 persistence feed that 
Right. Uh, let's take another phone call as we talk uh, with Debbie Montgomery, the first woman to become a police officer in the city of St. Paul and, and other amazing things that you will learn about. Uh, but want to hear your stories as well. 651-227-6000 as we talk about being the first. Uh, and Golden Valley, we have Alice on the phone. Hi, Alice. Hi. Good morning, Angela. Hi. Hello. Hi. Good morning, Miss Montgomery. Good morning. Um. I appreciate you all taking my call. I was listening to NPR, as I do every morning, and I was surprised to hear Miss Montgomery on this morning. And, um, you know, she has been a trailblazer in law enforcement. Um, my name is Alice White. I'm the assistant police chief at Golden Valley Police Department. And Miss Montgomery, to be able to watch her and see her lead the way she has for women and black women in law enforcement has been amazing. You have to see somebody in that role to know that you can be in that role. And it's, it's been a gift to be able to have her be the one to do that. Um, it's also pretty disappointing that in 2023, we're still having first in law enforcement and in other career fields, especially with women and black women um, and, and other women of color. So, um, me being a first, first black female on the police department in Golden Valley, mm. um, first assistant chief and black female in Golden Valley. But it's, you know, it's decades later and we're still experiencing this. And I just want to say one of my mentors said, you know, you may be first, Alice, but just make sure you're not last. Mm. And I think we all have an obligation to that. And, and I mm. thank Miss Montgomery for always showing up and always knowing what's going on in the associations and, and with the officers of color. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Alice. Uh, it, that's, it has to be satisfying uh, to know that uh, there are so many people who look to you, are inspired by you, and that you continue to contribute just, just by, by being present. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a great honor. And I, <clears throat> I just love the young people and their attitudes and, and, their, and their willingness to listen. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, there's so much information that I have been able to garner uh, through my career and able to share that and to give them some insight on not only how they can promote, but how can they recruit other folks of color or women to come into the field? I mean, I keep in my classes, I tell my students, we are public servants with an emphasis on servant and you know, we have to come prepared with our tools and our resources. And I always have them. I said, I give in their uniform pocket. I make sure they, we gather the notes to know, okay, if you get called to a, a, a child issue, um, who do you know? What social service agency do you know that maybe you can refer them to? Or if it's a child protection issue, no, don't give them the 1-800 number because they're already in crisis. Find out a number of somebody that works there. It may not be the right person, mm-hmm. but after you explain what it is, they can refer you to the right person. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when people are under st- stress, they don't have time or, or the interest to sit. They want to know who can help me with this. Call Linda at this number. Yes. Right. So uh, police departments across the nation are, are struggling to recruit officers. Uh, many of them short staff right now. And what are your thoughts on that um, about, you know, why we have this shortage and how do you how do you recruit good officers? Well, that that's one of the things, you know, we have to start early. We have to start working with the young people. 
I say in elementary school and let, you know, having them do the kinds of things to let them know what police do, but also in high school to let them know, you know, this is a great profession and you can help people and be a servant leader. Mm-hmm. And so that's some of the stuff that, uh, you know, I think that we should do. And, and we are short, but it's, you know, it's all behind all of the things that have happened up to this point that people have left the profession and the new people aren't coming out as fast as we need them. Mm-hmm. And so we've started cadet programs and things to bring people in, explore young, programs, yeah, young, young people, people in to let them know that this is a valued job and it's it's about serving people. And, and they get that sense. I mean, it's so interesting to see our St. Paul Police Department and what they've done with our cadet program. I'm, I'm still stuck on the fact, going back to... Uh, the seventies. You had four kids at home, a husband, and you're still doing this work. And so, just what? How? How do you keep it all together and balanced? You know what? Well, first of all, families first. That's your support system. You've got to have a good, strong family. And my husband was very supportive of me. And my kids. My youngest was two and a half, so he didn't really know what I was doing. And now he's a lieutenant on the Minneapolis Police Department. I. <laughs> So so now it's just one of those kinds of things where, you know, you kind of grow with it and you, you want to make sure your family's taken care of. But then I was always on neighborhood groups. So I was always talking to the community and, mm-hmm. and you know, I volunteered at the police department to do the, some of the service things that they had set up. So I was very engaging. And all three of your sons went into law enforcement. Yeah, they didn't listen to a word I told them. <laughs> Well, clearly they saw something that inspired them. Yes. Right. And, they, you know, they, they are. And they, uh, my one son actually was on the St. Paul Police Department with me, and now he's the director of public safety in McKinney, Texas. And my oldest son got recruited off of St. Mary's campus in Winona by the CIA and ended up at Prince George County. In Maryland. Reti- yeah, in mm-hmm. Maryland and retired. So it's – my daughter's an investment banker. Somebody listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Debbie, let's let's talk to someone in Eaton Prairie. We have Michelle on hold. Good morning, Michelle. And what do you want to tell us? Good morning. Um, well, my mom, growing up uh, in the eighties, she was the first uh, woman construction worker for St. Paul, the city of St. Paul. Um, so that was <laughs> the take your daughter to work day um, event was quite unique. <laughs> oh, you've got some stories. What, what was going on with, with mom at work? Uh, well, she. Um, she was a single mom, and she's quite inspiring in all ways. But um, she, you know, decided I'm going – she was a bus driver first and then decided, you know, I'm going to go try for this application for uh, the city of St. Paul, a construction worker. I remember her telling me um, about some of the tests, some of the rigorous tests of carrying buckets of cement alongside a bunch of guys and her being able to keep up with them and – passing the test and and going on through and then she was a construction worker I was so proud of her you know growing up like that and she was kind of a beacon of inspiration um for my future onward so and what did you end up doing Michelle oh uh, well I'm not uh, in an all-male dominated field or anything I'm in marketing and creative but <laughs> I was I went on to you know be the first graduate uh college graduate in my family oh. and I bet she was um, proud of you. Yeah, she still is. 
Fabulous. All right. Thank you, mm-hmm. Michelle there at Eden Perry. Talking more about being a first, uh, Debbie, I mentioned you're the, you were the first black woman to serve on the St. Paul City Council uh, decades ago. What, what was that like? Well, it was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you decide to run for city council? Well, thank you. That was a very good question because uh, I was actually, when I retired, my community asked me to run for the city council seat. That makes sense. And so I said, okay. And uh, then I I had a great campaign committee, a bunch of young kids from the University of St. Thomas and they came in and they, you know, helped me and we put together uh, some of the neighborhood young people that I was with that grew up with me. And we had a, our goals were to have jobs, economic development, opportunities for our youth and seniors. And so I was able to, in four years, get the first super target built that my green people wanted to have benches and trees. They didn't want to see a blacktop. So on University and, and Hamlin, that's the super target. Uh-huh. That's if you go there, the parking lot isn't to see a blacktop because they actually have trees and benches in the parking lot. And then I told the developer for it, I said, you see that building over there? 1247. I said, I got 3,000 Somalis in it. I don't need them looking at a blank wall, so I need display windows. So they put display windows. We have the only super target with display windows. Then I wanted him to do interactive, and he said, you're pushing me right now. (laughs) But uh, in in the four years I was on, I got 1,350 new jobs in Ward 1. I got uh, $109 million in new investment in the poorest ward in the city. I got 50 units of senior housing because my seniors wanted senior housing. So I got Cardi Heights built. And I got the Minnesota Vikings to turf the Oxford uh, playground um, with the help of Stacy Robinson. So it was more of my connections mm-hmm. and ability to network with my city planning background that I was able to do that. Wow, you did not come to play. <laughs> Wow. So when you when you so now I understand uh, people may know there's that's actually a street named Debbie Montgomery Avenue uh, in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul. What does it mean to you to, to drive by there? Our producer drove by there yesterday, took a photo of it. You know what? I, I was honored when they called and asked me, my council member asked me, he said, I want to name something after you. And I said, oh, what do you want to name? He said, what do you want? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so he said, well, let's name a street after you. And I said, well, I grew up on St. Anthony. Nope, that's taken. He said, mm-hmm. I lived on Rondo. He said, no, that's mm-hmm. taken. I said, why don't you pick a street? <laughs> so he picked Marshall Avenue from Lexington to Western, three miles long. And uh, I was just very honored. We had a dedication and everything. and Not far from the target yep. that you worked yep. on. Okay. I want to take another phone call. This is someone calling in from Afton. Uh, we're talking to Debbie Montgomery. And this is Lucia calling in. Uh, or is it Lucia? Yes. Good morning. Yeah, you got it. Hi. Um, and what do you want to share with us? Well, Deb, uh, it's Lucia from St. Paul. <laughs> I know you. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to tell you, man, I didn't even know that you were doing all that with four kids at the time and uh, your whole story. So, uh, Lucia, where do you work? Or, or what do you do? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I, sorry. Uh, what do I do? Yes. Um, I'm a retired I'm a retired St. Paul cop, 28 and a half years on the street. Oh, um, okay. And De- Deb was a, uh, I'm sorry, I'm acting like we're talking all alone. Um, Deb, Deb was a big big role model uh, for all of us women, um, and uh, I was among the first, what, 32 Debs, and then it went down to 30, yep. uh, 
in the late 80s to early 90s women, uh, but I will say I was probably the first kind of out gay person on our department. Mm-hmm. Um, that was fun. And uh, But uh, I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much, Deb, for all you've done. Um, you're, just, you're just amazing. And, and I will add one other thing, and that is we all think that there was some um, some give to have women. We're not we're not as qualified physically and all that stuff. And you totally tore that down. And I think I did too. I remember I was third in the SWAT uh, obstacle course uh, one year. You know they don't. Uh, we aren't given uh, we aren't given less. Uh, st- our standards are just the same as the guys. Mm. They certainly they were back then. And uh, women excelled. Some of us women excelled at it. So. I just hats off to you, Deb. I just wanted to call in and tell you that. Great hearing from you. Thank you. That's really nice. Uh, <laughs> another phone call uh, as we talk with Debbie Montgomery, the first woman to become a police officer in the city of St. Paul, the first black woman to serve on the city uh, council in St. Paul. And I understand there hasn't been another black woman on the city council since you left? No. What do you make of that? Uh, we got to work a little harder. <laughs> we got to identify young people. We've got right now. There's somebody trying to run in our ward, so we got to work to try to get them, get her on the city council. Because uh, when you, when you don't have, I guess, a lot of diversity, uh, you lack something, right? Right, right. right. And, and important decisions are being made. Yeah, right. Yeah. Resources are needed. Let's take another phone call in St. Paul. This is Robin, who's on the phone. Good morning, Robin. What do you want to uh, share with us as we talk with Debbie Montgomery? Well, good morning, Angela. Um, Debbie, I. Oh, I just thank you for being on of our Vision of Possibility Beacons. You know I love you. This is this is your girl, Robin. Thank you. Winfield. <laughs> uh, I was just um, a part of um, an event Sunday night, um, the Winfield Awards, where Debbie was honored as the Arlene Winfield Mother of the Year. Oh, wow. It was an honor to be there. Um, one of my tasks was to help and work with uh, her daughter, to do the introduction, to write the introduction. And um, I could have gone on and on and on. It was a great honor to do that. Um, Debbie was and is, again, a beacon for us as girls growing up in the Selby Dale community, descended of Rondo. She has been since I was a girl, a little girl. That symbol of we could do everything. We could do anything, and I want to thank you on the air for that, Debbie, um, for mentoring me, for loving me, for being truly my big sister, but that was the spirit of Rondo. Thank you. Um, see, we'll both get emotional. When I call you later to tell you where I'm driving from when I heard <laughs> um, Angela, and Angela, thank you for all that you've done and all of you standing with girls I've worked with to help them believe and know they could be the first. Mm-hmm. But that's what we have to do now for such a time as this. So walk with one another, be symbols of of, of beacons and uh, visions of possibilities for one another. Um, I know I went into media as a young girl, being a first young black girl to have a radio show or to be a work on a, a first black girl to be to work. At Channel 5 on a television show, and then being the first black woman from here to be an executive producer at public television. But that's because of the role models that we had in our community. Our village was so strong. And we've lived the answers that we seek today 
in order to pour into our young people. So I thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. All of my That's heart. Nice. And as a city thank council you. member, he <laughs> made sure people from our community were put on on boards and commissions. Mm-hmm. And he took me out of my zone of being a, in youth work and youth development, but put me on an economic development board. So each one, reach one and teach one. That's Debbie Montgomery. And I love you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Everything. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> uh, let's uh, take a phone call in Plymouth. Uh, this is Chris that's on the phone. Good morning, Chris. What do you want to tell us? Uh, good morning. And uh, thanks for taking my call. You know, Debbie has been a mentor for many of us in law enforcement. I'm a retired Minneapolis uh, assistant chief, oh. and uh, she she has been an incredible mentor, whether she knows it or not. So I want to thank you for that publicly, Debbie. Thank you. My question, my question is, um, you know, the research shows that women in policing really do make a difference, including changing culture. And there's a national initiative called Thirty by Thirty, which St. Paul is doing. Minneapolis has signed on to it. Many departments over um, the United States have signed on to it. Uh, And 30 by 30 means just increasing women in law enforcement by 2030. And so right now it's hard to recruit anyone into law enforcement. So do you have any thoughts on how to recruit more women into policing and, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we reach out to them and get them interested in the job and let them know the culture is changing slowly, Mm -hmm. but the culture is changing. And it will change more with women in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. If with more women uh, available to support one another, too. Um, thank you, Chris. We talked a little bit about recruitment. It, it's, it's, it's difficult, but obviously needed. Right. I, you know, I think, one, we have to, it's not so much just to go to colleges, but, you know, if you got, we got young people that are in social work or in psychology, um, you know, even the ones that are in physical, um, I don't know, physical, what do you call it, uh, training, um, all of those things. Oh, like uh, fitness instructors? Fitness, mm-hmm. yeah. If we could get all of those kinds of people that might, once again, being a servant leader, those are professions where the background helps us to do some recruiting. But, I mean, at this stage of the game, and I agree with her, um, we have just got to get young people to think, of law enforcement as a profession that's a service profession and not as a mm-hmm. correctional profession. It's, uh, I mean, there's just so much that we as women can do. Uh, that that mothering aspect, that you know, how do we bring people so that they know they're wanted, that they're loved, that you know they they need that to know that somebody cares about them. You know, with community members that law right. enforcement. Officers are interacting with. And, and, you know, behind COVID, I mean, our young people have been isolated for two years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're not used to, you know, I I always grab young people when I see them because they'll talk to you. They're not looking you in the eye. I mean, they're so busy. You know, they watch that Zoom stuff. and No, they're not on Zoom. They're they're playing games. (laughs) The adults are on Zoom. Okay. We don't give eye contact either anymore. So I understand. But that's that's (laughs) one of the things because we're a seat-touching uh, feel human being type, and that's something that we've really got engaged to get Humanity. engaged in. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's take another phone call before time is up. Uh, in St. Paul, June is on the phone. Hi, June. Thank you for waiting. And what do you want to share with us? Hello. Hi, June. We can hear you. Go right ahead. 
Hi. No, I just wanted to call in and uh, show my respect for you. Uh, my mom was part of the group of women who started the Duluth Women's Coalition up in Duluth and would speak highly of a female officer they particularly worked with to really help get that uh, program founded in the community. It was about uh, training officers and letting them know that women in domestic violence situations are more of a, the more of a victim and not part of the problem and trying to really kind of start that re-education of police officers. And she really spoke highly of this officer. And um, I just wanted to give my thanks and my respect. You know, I think a lot of women who have worked in your generation um, just did a lot of great things that we're still working on today, but really laid that foundation. And I just, I wanted to say thank you so much. Thank you Um, I really appreciate everything that you've done because I saw the hard work my mom put into this program and the hard work that the other females of the first Mm-hmm. Um, did for us. Thank you, June. Debbie, it sounds like you've planted a lot of seeds. Well, I got involved with a lot of, like she was saying, domestic violence and the different organizations to just say, okay, let me get a better understanding of what the issues are. And then how can we incorporate that in how we train our officers to deal with it? And so it's been a, a breath of fresh air to just here and then to take those resources that I've been able to get and to share it and then to do it in training. So it's helped to build better officers uh, throughout the careers. Mm. And in retirement now, it doesn't sound like you're retired. How do you describe this phase of life for you now? Well, my, you're, you're in your 70s. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah my, my son says I'm not retired. I said, no, I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody looks at my social calendar and they said, uh, I thought you're retired. I said, well, everybody keeps putting me on committees. Why? Because you get things done. Yeah. And it's interesting you said that because I I just had an issue that I had to deal with with the Parks Commission. And I ended up getting the four organizations that should have been talking to each other, talking to each other. And with an hour, they solved the problem. And I'm thinking, so why am I as a citizen pulling you all together when this should be done? Well, see, you you said something close to my heart. We we get people to start talking to each other. All right. There's your music, Debbie. I have to say goodbye to you now. But thank you so much. Thank you for everything you've done and continue to do. We've been talking with Debbie Montgomery, a community leader in St. Paul, the first woman to become a police officer in St. Paul, and the first black woman elected to the St. Paul City Council, as well as a bad man majama. (laughs) as she calls herself. <laughs> this conversation was produced by another bad mamma jamma, Samantha Matsumoto. Today is Samantha's last day at NPR News. And Samantha, thank you for all of your work. Uh, continue to shine. Continue to be a gift to others. I've learned a lot from you. All right, everybody. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.